I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hi, I'm Madigan, and you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist a podcast that explores the world through a personal feminist perspective. Hello, hello, everybody. How are you doing today? I hope that you are all enjoying your beautiful month of March, Women's History Month. And I am so excited about today's topic, mostly because I feel like this is one where, you know, there was research and reading involved, but a lot of it is my own feelings, my own reactions, and my perspective on a lot of these things. And for this week, I chose to talk about misogynistic dating advice throughout history. I don't really know exactly how I'm going to phrase the title of this episode yet, but I feel like, you know, it's something that's really common that pops up on social media a lot, where you'll see like vintage ads that are really, really misogynistic and gross. And, you know, I'm sure we've all heard advice from older family members and things like that that may seem a little bit questionable. So I wanted to talk about about that, but then also the phenomenon of a lot of these dating advice books and courses and movies and so on and so forth, and how the messaging in our society affects women and how it makes us view ourselves, view dating, view partners, so on and so forth. And I feel like it's a really important conversation to have. And I'm here, I think, also to kind of give some advice, to give, you know, some cautionary tales along the way. And, you know, I've been sharing more and more personal information with you all on this show and it's like every time I hit, you know, publish on an episode where I've gotten a little bit personal and deep, I'm always like, oh my God, I'm, I can't believe I'm sharing this much. And I get a little bit embarrassed. But truly, if one person can get anything out of a story that I have to share out of my personal experience, and if it can help them in some way, then it's worth it to me. I'm willing to, you know, bear it all and be vulnerable with you. If that means that you feel more comforted and less alone, or you feel like you've learned something from me. So 
I feel like because I was born in the early 90s and I grew up in the 90s and 2000s, I was just inundated with advice on how to be the best woman I can be so that I could attract a man, like even really, really young. I remember when I would see someone I liked, like this is so funny, but I actually had a crush on a girl in my church growing up who I thought was a little boy because she had short hair. And then when I found out she was a girl, I was like, oh, okay, whatever. But I remember putting on my Little Mermaid chapstick, like obsessively, like it was lipstick so that they would think I looked pretty (laughs) and notice me. You know, there's just these little things that we pick up on even as little kids. And I feel like especially with the media that was so rampant during this time, I mean, I remember my girlfriends and I buying copies of Cosmopolitan and devouring their articles of, you know, concealing and primping flirting, dating, and of course, sex. It felt really risky when we read these cosmos. I remember once we went and picked up some magazines like that and then got like some sweets. I remember we always ate a lot of raw cookie dough. And then once I remember getting, oh my God, this is so gross, buying raw cookie dough and a tub of icing and dipping the raw cookie dough in the icing and then eating it. And we would be like sitting on like a like a playground structure or something like that. But this particular time, I remember going to this place called the Witch's Hat, I think it's called in Minneapolis. And it's like kind of this more secluded park area. And so we brought our treats and our Cosmo magazines and we you know, did gave each other all the quizzes and read all, all the articles. And it really did seem like this Bible of how to be an adult woman. And we really wanted to emulate a lot of the things that were advised in this book. And especially because like we weren't sexually active teenagers, all of the sex advice was like, so mind opening and interesting and fascinating because we had never experienced any of those things before. So like it felt wrong, but it also just felt like this wealth of information, right? Little did we know that the information we're getting is like really fucking shitty. I remember the segments in those magazines on how to get a guy so vividly in my mind. And most of it boiled down to two things. Play hard to get and be the cool girl. Don't let him know that you want him. And then once you have him, you've got to be cool with everything or else he's not going to like you anymore. When getting the man, let him make the first move. Let him pay for the date. Don't answer his calls right away. Don't smother him. Don't bore him. Don't nag him. And do not demand from him. These messages would make their way into my mind and wart my perception of myself as a woman. This advice makes women seem like they are manipulative, needy, whiny, boring, and subhuman to man, who is the smart one and the authority in the relationship. I also remember most of the articles including something about improving your natural beauty with ridiculous beauty tips and suggestions, finding your correct color palette, what clothes to wear, what clothes not to wear, and most importantly, how to lose weight. Why was... Every single women's magazine so obsessed with weight loss. I shouldn't say was, is. Like every time you go to the supermarket, all over the front pages of all of these women's magazines are about diets and exercise and losing weight. Like, come on, there's more to women than that. And also in the 90s and 2000s, there was nothing more prominent in this era than open fat shaming in movies, TV shows, and in real life. Fat people were berated and told they were ugly and not good enough. We've even made the word fat into being something so negative, and it's not. It's just, it's a word, it's a thing, it's a thing that we have on our bodies that everyone has, some have more than others, and the number on the scale does not determine your worth in life, of course. But these articles talked about the importance of a flat stomach, which most women will find unobtainable, the perfect push-up bra to make your boobs appear bigger, and so on and so forth. Not only were women taking in these messages, but men were too, and they were reinforcing these ideas in the women that they dated. I mean, I think about American Pie. So many men watched that movie and were like, yeah, that's how you treat a woman, right? And I feel like there are so many creepy millennial men that are the product of movies like that because they think that acting like an asshole to your partner or to women and just straight up being gross is okay. And on a personal note, I really took a lot of these messages to heart, 
especially in a sport that demanded thinness, than desiring for a career that also prioritized youngness and thinness. I learned that women were always expected to be on, on their best behavior. When I was 18 and began dating my evil ex, I really need to think of a more universal term for him to use every time I mention him on the show. And he embodied everything that a Cosmo magazine demanded of a woman. He was critical of my body hair and would make fun of me if I didn't shave. He teased me if I wore anything society deemed masculine by calling me little boy, which is just gross. That you would ever call someone that you're sleeping with little boy? Ugh. He would berate me if I hadn't put any makeup on when we got together or didn't wear enough, though he also bragged about the fact that I was so beautiful that I didn't need much makeup compared to other people. I think that this was a really good example of love bombing and then bringing me back down, and he did this repeatedly for many, many years. By the time I was struggling with an eating disorder, he wanted me to get better and didn't like that I had gotten so skinny, though he loved the control he had over me when I was sick. He began calling me things like bird bones or Mowgli. I was with this guy from ages 18 to almost 22, and he tore away at my self-image and confidence over these years every time we were together, while also building me up in many ways, such as the makeup example. He would also brag to people about how talented of an actress I was and how I was the, the best scene partner he ever had and I'm so great and I'm going to be a star and all of this kind of stuff. Like He really, really liked to brag about me to other people, but then when we were alone, he would just like nitpick at every little thing about me in really, really cruel ways. But the foundation was already laid in the messages in those magazines, TV shows, and movies I was watching as a kid and at the time. This is what men really expected, and he was just saying it out loud and teaching me. He was teaching me to be a better woman, and I thought I needed that in him. I still really struggle off and on with my self-perception. Not necessarily my image, but I am very critical of myself as a person and constantly expect perfection from myself. When I don't meet those standards, I have always either been beaten up about it or beaten myself up about it, and breaking that habit is really fucking hard. I know this seems pretty deep for what our topic is today, but I think it's really important to talk about the damaging messages that young women and girls, as well as young boys and men, about dating and how to treat women. And I also want to say, before we get more into the actual dating advice, since we're talking about generally non-modern dating advice, it's heteronormative as fuck, but that's also a major part of the problem. Let's talk about some vintage dating tips that I found online. There's some really funny advice, such as a piece in a book titled How to Be a Lady, containing useful hints on the foundation of character, published in 1850 by a man named Harvey Newcomb. It says, ladies seldom take cheese at a dinner party. <laughs> what? There were, however, books authored by women in the 1800s, too, like the book Etiquette, Health, and Beauty by Frances Stevens and Frances M. Smith in 1889, which contains this lovely passage. I once knew a man who said that for him, two kinds of women existed, those who were civilized and those who wore earrings. This one just sounds absolutely ridiculous, but apparently pierced ears and earrings were a big turnoff for men in this time. To me, I feel like it implies a woman who is too eager for attention to be on her if she's wearing big sparkling earrings, and a man wants a more demure beauty rather than a flashy one. Another funny one is from something hilariously titled The Spinster Book, written by Myrtle Reed in 1901, which reads, No wise girl would accept a man who proposed by moonlight or just after a meal. The dear things aren't themselves, then. Now, I'm not sure if she's referring to the man not being themselves or the woman not being themselves. I took it to mean that the man is not themselves after a meal, but I feel like, would you rather have a starved, cranky, annoying man propose to you pre-meal? I think not. And also, this is such an important rule. Why have so many men proposed by putting the ring in the dessert? 
Now, if we want to look at this a little bit deeper, we could link it to that old adage, nothing good ever happens after 2 a.m. or whatever time. So maybe that's what they're referring to. But who hasn't had a night with someone that got you totally swept up in the moment where you got so overwhelmed with a loving feeling that you would possibly do or agree to some stupid shit? Especially at this time, I feel like people dated for like two minutes before getting proposed. My parents, who were married in 1972, were only dating for like three months when my dad proposed, and they were married within the year, I believe. Mom, fact check me. That was only 51 years ago, so I know it happened a lot in 1901 when that little piece of advice came out. There's another piece coming from 1910, which I had to add into these notes. Love, like fly fishing, looks easy enough. You try it and find out your mistake. (laughs) Oh, I think the man who wrote this one, Walter Gallichin, missed out on a career as a country music artist with words like that. There was a dating guide that was published in Click Photo Parade magazine in 1938, and here are some of my favorite tips from it. Do your dressing in your boudoir to keep your allure. Be ready to go when date arrives. Don't keep him waiting. Greet him with a smile. Well, I'm going to tell you now, all the authors of these rules would fucking hate me because I am fucking shameless. I think that everyone has varying comfortability in different levels of undress. And I grew up changing in front of people all the time, whether it be for dance or skating, theater, acting class, so on and so forth. So I've always been really comfortable being in different levels of undress. And I've never been super weird about getting undressed in front of the people that I'm seeing. Because if you're going to see me in bed, you might as well see me out of bed, right? Then again, at this time, most people probably had sex with the lights off and didn't really see each other naked. I will say, though, I will always be ready on time. I hate being rushed, and I don't like sitting around once I'm ready, so I would rather just leave early. So if you're picking me up on a date, chances are I've been fully ready for over an hour, and I've just been killing time. Lastly, don't tell me when to fucking smile. If you need a brassiere, wear one. Don't tug at your girdle and be careful your stockings are not wrinkled. You taking notes, ladies, ladies, and gabies? Don't sit in awkward positions and never look bored, even if you are. Be alert. I'm sorry, but I can only sit in awkward positions, and I've never been one to worry about sitting like a lady. If you must chew gum, not advised, do it silently, mouth closed. Now, I agree with them about chewing gum with your mouth closed. For the love of goddess that is good and holy, do not chew gum with your mouth open ever, no matter if you're on a date or not. However, please chew all the gum you need. Just do it politely. Oh, this is a good one. I like this one a lot. Don't use a car mirror to fix your makeup. Man needs it in driving, and it annoys him very much to have to turn around to see what's behind him. I mean, this one is just bad advice all around. Yes, one needs the rearview mirror for driving, and it is, in my opinion, rude to be using that mirror to apply makeup. However, this piece of advice is misleading women to believe that if you use your rearview mirror, you don't have to physically look behind you when you're driving. What about blind spots? This is just bad life advice on top of weird dating advice. They also say it's very important not to embarrass your partner in public. They say, careless women never appeal to men. Well, darn. Don't be familiar with your escort by caressing him in public. Any show of affection is in bad taste and usually embarrasses and humiliates them. Honestly, there is nothing scarier than a humiliated man with anger problems. This one hits close to home for me because the ex I mentioned earlier was super weird about labels and affection when we were together. We were never labeled boyfriend and girlfriend, and he would get mad if I tried to refer to him as such. I usually just went with significant other. He also didn't like it when I initiated any sort of affection if other people were around. But then sometimes, around certain people or if he'd get drunk, then he would openly be touching me and kissing me, and often it got to the point of being inappropriate and making me uncomfortable. It's a possession game. They want to keep you on a leash and only give you affection when they feel you deserve it or when it makes them look good, not as a real feeling human being with needs and desires from their partner, not to mention consistency. 
This is why I'm always skeptical of the partner who constantly has their hands all over the other partner. It seems super possessive and smothering to me. Don't drink too much, as a man expects you to keep your dignity all evening. Drinking may make some girls seem clever, but most get silly. Oh no, one mustn't get silly! Also, by the way, no one ever gets clever when they're drunk. We're all stupid assholes. Okay, this one is my favorite piece of advice from the whole thing. Don't talk while dancing, for when a man dances, he wants to dance. So I mentioned some of those vintage ads at the top of the episode, and now I want to go over a few of them that I looked up. And these blatantly misogynistic ads were just rampant in decades past. Hell, not so long ago, little Meghan Markle wrote to a dishwashing soap company to change their commercial back in the 90s. And if you all haven't seen that video, it's absolutely adorable. Go Google it. So here are some of the favorite ones that I found online. There is one ad from the 40s for Kellogg's Pep Vitamins, which just sounds like branded speed to me, which shows what I assume to be a housewife, and I assume this because she's wearing an apron and holding a feather duster, either that or she's the house cleaner, being held by a man who I assume to be the husband or a cheating husband in the case of the house cleaner scenario. And the man is saying... So the harder my wife works, the cuter she looks. Another smaller comic in the corner shows a similar image, but in cartoon form, with the husband saying to his wife, Gosh, honey, you seem to thrive on cooking, cleaning, and dusting, and I'm all tuckered out by closing time. What's the answer? The wife replies, Vitamins, darling. I always get my vitamins. In an ad from the 70s promoting some new men's shoe, there is an image of a blonde Farrah Fawcett type lying on the ground lovingly looking at the shoe. I also have to mention that there is no leg attached to said shoe. It's just a shoe on the floor that the woman is laying down staring at. The text of the ad reads, Keep her where she belongs. Apparently, that's underneath your fucking shoe. Another ad from a similar period shows a tiger skin rug with the head of a woman, and a man is stepping on the woman's head. It reads, After one look at his Mr. Leg slacks, she was ready to have him walk all over her. And these were things that both men and women were seeing over and over again every day when they opened their newspaper, every time they opened a magazine ad. And I feel like it was really the media's way of keeping the genders in their place. You know what I mean? It's like constantly putting women in this perspective of being the one that has to cater to men or be under the thumb of a man. And we read this long enough, we start to believe it. And I think that men really start to kind of feel like they have more power than they deserve because they've been told that they do their entire lives. All right, jumping around a little bit more, I want to talk about weight loss tips in particular because there are some ridiculous weight loss tips in old magazines. Now, you know me, I'm a pretty loud proponent against diets and diet culture, so I would never put anything on the show that I thought would be dangerous or triggering to anyone, specifically on this topic. But these weight loss tips I'm about to share are hopefully so ridiculous that it's obvious that there wouldn't be much success in attempting them. A piece from a Mrs. A.H.M.'s from 1890 reads... Gently rubbing the stomach night and morning, and more frequently if possible, will greatly reduce it in size. Now I'm just imagining a desperate 19-year-old Madigan constantly rubbing her stomach. Diets and diet fads have been around since at least the 1800s, and some don't look that different than the ones you see today, such as low-carb diets and others like it. There were also strange contraptions and other types of medicine and technology that became popular for weight loss in the early 1900s, and they all look absolutely ridiculous. A lot of them have to do with doing something minimal and still getting great results. (laughs) But I feel like exercise was also something that was kind of new for women in the 70s and 80s, like, you know, walking and things like that were normal, but women weren't really allowed in sports. They weren't, you know, they weren't supposed to have like, you know, muscles and be super strong. They were supposed to be more like weak and demure. 
So this kind of, I think, started this dichotomy in a woman's head between like, I'm supposed to exercise and diet to look good, but I can't do it too much because then I'm going to look too muscular. You know, there was just this idea of having to fit this perfect woman shape and figure. And I think that a lot of that is still held on to this day. And we have a lot of really ridiculous beauty standards for people who identify as women, you know? We've talked so much about, you know, the size chart in the past and body image and, you know, problematic fashion throughout history and things like that. So I'm sure you all remember a lot of those things, but I had to mention it because in literally every single dating ad or article or book, you're going to see a lot about weight loss. And this is going to take us into the 1990s. There was this book called The Rules, which I'm going to get into much more later. But there's a portion of The Rules which mentions, An average-looking, slender girl has a better chance of attracting a guy than a very pretty, overweight girl. Excuse me? That is so ridiculously cruel and just not true. But this is something that I feel like a lot of women have believed about themselves and not even women who are particularly overweight, but just women that have fat on their bodies in general. The second that they start to notice their bodies changing, they're like, well, now no man is ever going to love me. And this really sticks in women's heads and they'll stay in bad relationships because, you know, maybe someone is finally showing them some affection and they thought that they would never receive it. It's it's very sad to me. I just want everyone out there to know their worth, no matter what they look like on the outside. Like, you are beautiful. You are perfect. There is nothing wrong with the way that your body and yourself naturally is. And you're going to find a person that thinks that the way you are is perfect for them. And anyone else who thinks otherwise isn't worth it. All right, so when I think of dating advice in the 90s, the first thing that comes to mind is Sex in the City. If you want to hear a whole episode on Sex in the City in particular, you can find it in the backlog of episodes somewhere. But Sex in the City was one of the biggest carriers of dating advice at the time, and it was adapted out of a real dating advice column in the New York Observer written by Candace Bushnell. A lot of themes of the advice given in Sex in the City is reminiscent of other work from dating and self-help books at the time. Like I said, there was this one book called The Rules. The Rules, Time-Tested Secrets for Capturing the Heart of Mr. Right, was published in 1995 by Ellen Fien and Sherry Schneider. In its heyday, the book sold over 2 million copies and was printed in 27 different languages. The authors appeared on Oprah, 2020, The Today Show, and many, many other media outlets. The authors held rules support groups where rules facilitators trained by the authors would work with you to help you find your partner. There was also a rules journal for you to record the first date to the wedding date. Cringe. Ellen and Sherry also offered phone coaching where you can have a 15-minute one-on-one session for $150, or if you just have a quick question, you can pay $50 for five minutes. But if you pay them $1,200, you could be the lucky lady who meets up with either Sherry or Ellen, but not both, at the luxurious Short Hills Mall in none other than New Jersey for a four-hour private consultation in a mall. You lucky, lucky duck. In the book, the authors tell the reader that though society may change and evolve, men still want to pursue and women are supposed to be pursued. They believe that the independence gained since the second wave has alienated men and made them feel less powerful and less likely to date you. What a load of bullshit. This is like taking lessons from Sleeping Beauty. Be meek, demure, essentially disappear or be asleep and let the man come to you. Don't have too many opinions, don't be too outspoken, for it's the woman's job to ensure that their man feels big and important and makes him feel like he is so much smarter than she is. And it's shocking because this book came in dead center of the third wave, so when riot girls were rebelling, the rules girls were surrendering. The differences between the third wave feminists and the rules followers were pretty polarizing. Because at this time, The Rules and The Vagina Monologues were both bestsellers. 
There were TV shows promoting purity like Seventh Heaven and shows promoting depravity like Jackass in the real world. It truly created this us versus them mentality between women that is so obviously seen in every teen movies in the 2000s. The rules girls were the Madonnas, the rebellious ones, the whores. Feminism, according to author Sherry Schneider, is about equal pay for equal work, owning a condo or running a marathon. But it's not about asking men out, paying for dates or being a man. Women cannot be men romantically. Oh, there's so much to unpack in that one little section. Okay, let's see. The first thing that she said is that feminism is only about equal pay for equal work, owning a condo or running a marathon. Now, that was a major, major focus of feminism in the second wave. Equal pay for equal work. It's something that we still talk about a lot as women. And I think that there is this idea that feminism is that and only that, being like paid equally and getting the same job opportunities. People who are not educated on it do not realize the different waves and the different, um, I guess, facets to feminism that aren't so cut and dry. And this, to me, just shows that she's uneducated. And she says it's not about asking men out, paying for dates, or being a man. Now, this is just problematic as fuck. I think that going half and half on a date or, you know, the guy paying once, and the woman paying once or the par- one partner paying one time and another partner paying another time. Like that's just normal parts of relationships. I don't think that it should be on the responsibility of the man to always have to pay, especially I mean, in the 90s, women had full time jobs. It wasn't like women weren't allowed to have credit cards, have their own money and only their husbands could work where they were literally just like servants to whatever their husbands wanted because they couldn't pay to leave or do anything for themselves. So yes, feminism is about paying for your own dates and maybe even asking men out or even being a little bit like a man or whatever the fuck that means. The fact that they say women cannot be men and then add romantically, it just all of it seems really, really icky and heteronormative and stupid and ignorant. Okay. Since the success of their first book, Ellen and Sherry also published The Rules of Marriage and The Rules for Online Dating. Most recently in 2013, they published Not Your Mother's Rules. It's described as an updated version of the rules. However, they still say that men should make the first move, and if a woman does it first, she is going against the natural order of things. Rule number four clearly states, Some argue, what's the worst that can happen? That he will say no to drinks? So what? Wrong. The worst that can happen is that he will say yes and date you, have sex with you, and lead you to believe that you are in a relationship. But eventually, he will dump you for the girl he really likes. Now, this happens, but that's not your fault. That's the fucking asshole guy's fault. (laughs) In the original rules book, there is a chapter called Be Cautious of Date Rape. In it, the authors say, if you do decide to drink, be smart about it. On campus, you hear about date rape all too often. Stories of girls who drank too much and suffered the consequences. Okay, now hold on. I don't even know where to start here, so let's just break it down sentence by sentence again. The first thing they state is that if you're going to drink, don't drink too much. Or in other words, be smart about it. Young adults on a college campus do not yet know how to be smart about drinking, and the authors also aren't considering things like peer pressure or even the drugging of drinks. Secondly, the way they talk about date rape makes it sound like it isn't that big of a deal. In fact, I fucking hate the term date rape, when really all it means is that the victim knew or was dating or had been intimate with that person. By adding the word date to it, it somehow diminishes its severity. It makes it seem familiar and less scary or traumatizing. Lastly, they say, you hear about date rape all too often, stories of girls who drink too much and suffered the consequences. This is called victim blaming. It doesn't matter how many drinks you have had or what you are wearing or even if you said yes at some point. Once the consent is gone, the activity is no longer sex and it becomes rape. And that rape is the sole responsibility of the perpetrator, who is the one with the power and control in the situation and not on the scared and violated victim. 
it hurts me so much that there would be young girls reading this book in even 2013 who are learning to place blame of someone else violating them upon themselves. This needs to stop. All right, before I go into reading some of these rules, let's take a real quick commercial break. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch, and organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers, and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. All right, I'm back. Let's talk a little bit about the authors, Ellen and Sherry, for a sec before we get into all of these rules. So Ellen and Sherry had been best friends for a long time before they started writing their bestseller. They wrote it apparently in Sherry's apartment in New York, and there are varying stories about where the inspiration came from. Some sources that I read cite the grandmother of one of the two, but others say that Ellen had won a husband by playing hard to get, and she was sharing this advice with Sherry as they wrote their book. Rule number one, and this one is just, oh, what a way to start a book, truly. Be a creature like no other. They say, a sense of confidence and radiance that permeates your being from head to toe. That's a lot to ask of a woman who you're going to repeatedly shame throughout this book. It's the way you smile, you light up a room, pause between your sentences, you don't babble on and on out of nervousness. Guilty. Listen attentively, look demurely, never stare, breathe slowly, stand straight, and walk briskly with your shoulders back. Breathe slowly? Like, why are you telling me how to breathe? This is really nerve-wracking. Rule number two, 
don't talk to a man first and don't ask him to dance. Why is there all of this dance talk still appearing in a dating handbook from the 90s? Are there mentions of dance cards in Skip to Malou as well? Rule number four, don't meet him halfway or go Dutch on dates. Now gather round, children. Going Dutch means splitting the bill. Now that that's out of the way, they go on to say, Real men pick their women, their women, up at their home or office for a date. I am going to refute this real quick. Please, 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 if you don't know someone, meet them somewhere, somewhere public. Take your own car or mode of transportation because best case bad scenario, it's a horrible date. And worst case bad scenario, he attacks you. Either way, you want a way out. These are the things that women have to live with. It's great. Rule number five, don't call him and rarely return his calls. Now I must ask, how are you going to get the guy if you never take his calls? Rule number six, always end phone calls first. Why are they teaching such rude phone etiquette? Rule number nine is how to act on dates one, two, and three. They say, all you really have to do on the first three dates is show up, relax, and pretend you're an actress making a cameo appearance in a movie. What the fuck? They may as well have said, pretend you're a prop lamp on a film set, barely noticed, but you add a bit of shine to the room. Maybe I should write one of these. This is horrible. Every woman should know and offer their worth to the one that they want to spend the rest of their life with. Don't let any partner dull your shine. Be the main character, bitch. Rule number 10. How to act on date four through commitment time. Don't overwhelm him with your career triumphs. Let him shine. Oh dear God, you already know what I'm going to say here. Brag about yourself. Tell him how great you are because you're wa- you want your partner to gas you up. You know, you want someone who's proud of you. Okay, so rule number 12 I can somewhat get on board with. It says, stop dating him if he doesn't buy you a romantic gift for your birthday or Valentine's Day. Now, let me clarify. I don't give a fuck about Valentine's Day, but I love my birthday. And it isn't even about the price or financial value of a gift, but the thought that went into it that I love. Giving and receiving gifts is definitely a love language I vibe with. When Max and I first started dating, he would bring home a bottle of wine and a couple Reese's peanut butter cups for me when he would get home from work. And like that just always warmed my heart so much. However, never get me flowers. If you know me, you know you don't get me flowers. Jewelry lasts forever, darling. And Ellen and Sherry agree with me. They say, when a man wants to marry you, he'll usually give you jewelry, not sporty or practical gifts like a toaster oven. I disagree with that last statement. Max and I got each other nothing but kitchen appliances and accessories for Christmas, and it was perfect. Rule number 20. Be honest, but mysterious. How in the fuck? This is my goal in life, to be cool and mysterious, but also like super honest and real. But I turned out to be too real and I talk too much to be cool. They say, before he comes over, tuck this book away in your top drawer. So specific about which drawer to put it in. And make sure any self-help books are out of sight. You wouldn't want him to think you work on your self-improvement now, would you? Have interesting books or nonfiction books in full view. However, I would say the self-help genre is usually nonfiction, but whatever. Hide in the closet any grungy bathrobes or things you don't want him to see. Yeah, that's how you fucking clean. If someone is like, hey, I'm going to stop by, you shove everything into a closet and pretend that you always live in a perfectly clean home. Rule number 22. Don't live with a man or leave things at his apartment. Was this section written by all of my exes? (laughs) They say, move in if you've set a wedding date. Well, I've broken that rule. Now, this one makes me think of my abusive ex so much because, like, I remember once I left something so insignificant at his house. Like, it was, like, I don't even know if if it was, like, a, a hair tie or I don't know. But I had, like, spent the night and I left something behind. And he, like made it into this thing that I was trying to like stake my claim by like leaving something behind. And I just never, 
I never really thought about the fact that he talked to me like I was just so manipulative and had like all of the uh, these, you know, negative intentions by leaving something at his home. And he yeah, he never wanted any sort of evidence of me around, even though I spent so much time there. And I, oh God, he never would have asked me to move in or anything like that. Like that was never going to happen. And then my most recent ex before Max, oh my God, he never wanted to live with me. That was like the reason we ended things. He was like, I love you, but I I don't want to live with you. And I was like, well, then fuck you. I don't know. I don't know what it is about men and their space and thinking that having anything of their partners in their home means that they're less independent. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Rule number 31, don't discuss the rules with your therapist. Red flags, red flags, red flags. Never listen to anyone who tells you not to tell your therapist something. Like, this is fucking gross. And they're telling you this because all of their rules are fucking bullshit. And any therapist would tell you so. They even write this in the book. Some therapists will think the rules are dishonest and manipulative. They will encourage you to be open and honest in your relationships, to talk things out, not keep your feelings of love and hurt inside. And that therapist's advice would be very, very good advice. Don't cry out loud. Just keep it inside. Learn how to hide your feelings. Fly high and proud. And if you should fall, remember you almost had it. Thank you, Melissa Manchester, for messing up a generation of women. Rule number 35, be easy to live with. I assume this is once you've at least set the wedding date. As hard as you work to be hard to get, now you must work on being easygoing. Ah, yes, the old cool girl adage. Women in heterosexual relationships are expected to be totally down with whatever the man wants, whether it be good, bad, disgusting, or otherwise. They don't want to drink fruity pink drinks. They don't want to watch the chick flick. They don't care about going out and dancing with their girls. They don't obsess about makeup. They don't listen to popular music. I mean, these were all things, especially I feel like in the 2000s and 2010s, that was like a really, really popular message that was being sent to women. I mean, I think about the movie 500 Days of Summer. And I can't, did we cover that movie on this show at some point? Because if not, maybe I should recap that movie on the show because it truly does exemplify a really, really damaging perception that men have of women and objectifying them in a certain way. At the end of the book, they write, do the rules and you'll live happily ever after. Or I say you'll slowly die away inside and hold the pain in for so long that you snap and murder your husband. I swear this kind of shit is how psychopaths are made and encouraged. And though these rules might sound ridiculous to us when we're spelling them out like this, there are still online courses to take from these authors of the rules. These ladies are still offering their services and there is still a huge market for books like these to young women. In preparation for this episode, I read a great article in the New York Times titled Stuff Your Rules, and at the beginning of the article, they sum up the book quite nicely like this. Don't chase men. Men are hunters. Make them want you. You are doing them a favor when you are withholding. They need a project. You are their project. Don't worry, even if you are a miskite, which is a Jewish slang term for an ugly person. If you put yourself together enough, you will ignite the heart of a man who is consumed by the chase that he'll never notice that you are incompatible or you are desperately needy or you have untreated club foot or your eyes are too close together or you get poppy seeds stuck in your teeth or you have irregular periods, your bikini line is unwieldy or you're a child hater or your slight but apparent case of untreated scoliosis, or you're ambivalent about your religion or don't know who you will vote for, yet you do not know how to cook or you have seasonal allergies or sometimes feel a dark yearning about what you are supposed to be doing on this earth or are similarly vile. 
The entire book and program sums down to men being dim-witted hunters and women are elusive, shiny bait. It tells women that if they are too forward, they are seen as desperate. But in our society, when a man relentlessly pursues a woman, this is seen as romantic. Watch any episode of The Bachelor. Do you notice the double standards as glaringly as I do? Most of the book, The Rules, and the next book I'm going to talk about, He's Just Not That Into You, center around the idea of women playing hard to get to win a man. I personally greatly disagree with this idea. I show a person who I am right away. They don't need to know every dirty detail, and I don't need to overshare, but I want the person that I'm potentially going to be with to see the whole me right away. I'm pretty sure I showed up on my third date with Max in sweatpants, and I'm pretty sure I got my first kiss that night. (laughs) My point is, I've always held a strong belief that if people can't handle your true authentic self, they don't deserve to be in your life. I don't care if that's a friend, family member, or partner. Surround yourself with people who think the sun shines out your ass. So let's talk about He's Just Not That Into You. Full disclosure, I didn't think I realized that this was a book, but I have seen the movie a few times. Well, the book, He's Just Not That Into You, was written by a couple of writers from Sex and the City. See, I told you it would come back. Gregory Berent, I think you say his name, was hired as a script consultant in 2006 to act as an honorary straight man in a writer's room that was apparently filled with women and gay men. Who thought they'd see the day where the straight cis white man was the minority, huh? Liz Tuccio was a writer and producer of Sex and the City and also wrote the book How to Be Single, which was also made into a movie. The rules in this book are very similar to the rules in The Rules, but spoken a little more crassly and straightforward, also a lot less prude. They still tell you to let him make the first move. Women like strong men who take charge. Okay. Don't show your flaws too early. We've been through this. It also reminds me of phrases that men like to use, such as, makeup is false advertising. There's nothing wrong with anyone enhancing their look to feel more attractive for themselves or others. Women may wear makeup. Now, many men wear makeup too. And men have always wanted to, you know, fix up the hair on their head or their face. Now men even get waxed and get mani-pedis and do all sorts of beauty regimens that could also be seen as false advertising. I was also praised for not needing to wear so much makeup. Honestly, the only reason people think this is because they've never seen me in a full face of makeup. I honestly can't remember the last time that happened. It's just not for me. But if you enjoy it, I love to see and admire it on you. But I really think that that's why people say that. Like, if they were used to seeing me in a full face of makeup and then they saw me without, maybe they wouldn't feel that way. And maybe they would feel that I was, you know, giving off false advertising. I don't know. Whatever. They write that making men see that you're human too soon would break the facade of perfection and end the relationship. Honey, no one is perfect and no one should pretend to be. Women are paradoxically shamed for being inauthentic and shamed for wanting to be authentic. We can't win. In my opinion, show all of your true colors at once. Show them the whole goddamn rainbow. And if they can't handle you at your worst, they sure as hell don't deserve you at your best. Outside of these books and movies, there is advice passed down from woman to woman and man to man that perpetuates this vicious cycle of imbalance of power in relationships. And I mean in all relationships, not just heterosexual ones. One lie that is told again and again and again and is still told to this day is that we must love ourselves before we can love someone else. This falsely positions love as a reward for self-improvement and places blame on the person with low self-esteem. You don't need a flawless self-image to receive love. However, I do believe that in order to notice and choose healthy relationships, we must see some value in ourselves. Unlearning the toxic messages we've received throughout our lives about beauty and self-worth takes time to work through, and you don't have to be perfect to be perfect for someone else. Your partner should want to be there to help support you and lift you up. Let them go on the journey of self-love alongside of you and support them in their own personal journey as well. Remember, just because you're a couple doesn't mean you aren't your own person. I hate the term, my other half or my better half, because I need my identity. I was not half before I met the person I wanted to live with, and I wouldn't be a half again if we ever ended. 
I have proven to myself time and time again that I am strong enough to stand on my own two feet. And as long as I have me, I'm okay. Okay, getting off of the serious stuff for a sec. How often have you been told not to sleep with someone too soon? Ugh, I've been slut-shamed by more friends of mine than my mother or partners, well, some of them, ever had. I remember when I first moved to LA, I was dating this guy who just won an Emmy for his work on SNL, but no big deal, and I spent the night at his apartment this one time, and it was this big complex, there's like 20 or so buildings in it, and there was a friend of mine that lived in another building in the same complex, and I didn't have a car yet out here in LA, so I called her, and she was kind of like my person that would always pick me up, we were always together hanging out anyway, so I called and I was like, hey... I'm, you know, over at this building. Could you pick me up and take me home and we can hang out? And she was like, yeah, sure. And I remember she walked over to his building and she was acting really salty. This was close to like 14 years ago, so I don't remember the whole conversation. But I remember her actually calling me a slut for spending the night with this guy. I told her I hadn't slept with him, which I didn't, but not that that even mattered. I remember standing up for myself a bit and being like, you're acting ridiculous. And she did not like that. She was like, well, then I guess you're going to have to start finding other rides. I'm pretty sure it was this or one other time that was the last time we ever hung out. I couldn't believe that she was being so mean to me just about spending time with someone that I had feelings for. Look, if y'all are two consenting adults who respect one another, get it on. I don't care. Be safe. Wrap it up. Take birth control. Do what you have to do. It's no one else's business, and no one else's opinion on your sex life should have any merit on your opinion of yourself. Another big piece of advice is to make him feel like a man. My ex's mom would be like this with me. Now, this is kind of a long story short, but I think that it's a really important story about dating in my life, and then we'll get to why his mom ties into it at the end of the story. And I don't know if I've ever talked about this, but the guy that I was with when I first started the show, I'm not going to mention his name, but if you've listened from the beginning, you know who I'm talking about. I'm going to call him Tony for this episode. Don't ask how I came up with that name, but... I kissed this guy, we're going to call him Tony, for the first time when we were just scene partners in rehearsal together, and my abusive ex and I were still together when we did this kiss, and then after that, like, we kind of started, like, flirting, and we shared, you know, through text that we had feelings for one another, And now this was never a problem, like this wasn't me cheating or anything because the abusive guy, I mean, he slept with other women and dated other women the entire time we were together and that was totally fine. And though he wasn't okay with me seeing other guys and doing this, I did the entire time. I dated all throughout those years with different people and would try to leave him over and over again and then Whenever he would see me with someone else, he would suck me back in, and it was just this horrible, vicious cycle. So this kind of just seemed like another one of those moments. Like I was just kind of talking to a new guy and kind of liked him, and I told him over text that I that I had a crush on him. And I finally decided to break up with the abusive guy once and for all, but that is a much longer story for another time. It took like a week to finally get the abusive ex to leave me the fuck alone. I even had to change my phone number and everything. And I decided to hit up an old friend of mine who I'd actually known because we had started out dating. My abusive ex was super intimidated by this guy. He was super good looking, super nice, and was a lifesaver to me. And he was so, so kind. So he wasn't high up on the bad guys list of pals. I called him up and we decided to meet. We hung out and had a drink and turned on the TV in his minimally furnished and decorated apartment. He asked me if things with the new guy were serious. I said they weren't because that was the truth. I told him I liked the guy a lot, but I had been in and out of an incredibly horrible relationship for over three years and I didn't know what the hell I wanted. My friend made a move on me and we took things to the bedroom. You nasties, I'm not giving you any details. My mom listens. I did feel guilty afterward pretty immediately because I really did like Tony, but it was nice to be with my friend, and I knew it was a one-time thing. It didn't mean anything important to me in the scheme of things, but it was a nice moment with someone who meant a lot to me, and I was single, so I did nothing wrong. 
My mom encouraged me not to tell him, and she said it would be releasing a burden off myself, which would be selfish, and hurt him for no reason. But still, that Catholic guilt ate at me, but I still decided not to tell him. We weren't even officially together until months later. But shortly after we did make things official, like maybe two months later, I left for my early morning nanny job before class, and I got a call from Tony as I was walking in. He had read one of my journals, apparently thinking it was a drawing book, and read that I had slept with my friend and felt guilty about it. For the next four and a half years, I was made to feel like I had cheated on him, like I had done something unforgivably bad. Every argument from then on would lead to me backing down, because I had made the original sin, which meant he could do no wrong. He never corrected me on that feeling. Throughout the whole relationship, the same fight would come up over and over again, always ending in me being the bad guy, and I was always so sorry. He made me stop any and all communication with any person I had ever had feelings for, been intimate with, or dated. I blocked my friend that I had slept with everywhere, and when he texted me confused, I blocked his phone number too. Tony also made me throw away all of my old journals. The ones from treatment, both times. The ones from high school. The ones from my childhood. Anything that mentioned another man. I lived in this pain for a long time, and I tried so hard to be good enough for him. And all his mom would ever suggest are things like, you should wear something he thinks you look good in, or you should treat him to dinner. Like I didn't pay for everything in that relationship. It wasn't until I was leaving the relationship and his mother was still pulling this shit with me about how he needs me and I need to care for him, yada, yada, yada. It just showed me how much she has internalized this misogyny from the men around her. And I'm so glad I left all of those assholes. There's also a toxic romanticism of the naive girl slash damsel in distress, which makes women seem like stupid, helpless beings in need of being fixed and helped along in life instead of being the interesting, weird, beautiful, gross, smart, curious, wonderful humans that we are. Just because we are women doesn't mean we bear responsibility to be pretty. We are not objects to be gazed at. Just because we are women doesn't mean that we don't have important things to say, smart things to say. Just because we are women doesn't mean we have to fit into one box of how society views the ideal. In dating and in love, your person will love you for your mess and your best. All right, that's everything that I have on that topic. If you have any thoughts and feelings about the episode, I would really love to hear your responses. So please email me at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com or direct message me on Instagram at angryneighborhoodfeminist and follow me there. I would very greatly appreciate it. I've been making a lot more reels lately. It's really fun and I, I really enjoy all the interaction that I get with you all on social media. So thank you so much. Just another quick reminder that if you haven't joined the Angry Feminist Book Club, it is a hell of a time. I just released the first episode covering women talking uh, a few days ago, a week ago, I can't remember, but I really, really enjoyed the first episode for women talking and a little bit of where I'm at right now. I'm actually going to be gone over the weekend, so you're going to have a re-release episode on Monday and then a new episode the following Monday as well as a new Patreon episode where I'm going to be going through the true story behind women talking of the Mennonite women who were abused and the attackers who were imprisoned and going into a little bit about the author and what made her write the book, so on and so forth. So if you're interested in joining the Angry Feminist Book Club, go to patreon.com slash angry neighborhood feminist or click the link in the show notes or in the Instagram bio. There are two tiers that you can join. The $5 tier is the angry feminist book club where you get all the book club content. And then the $8 tier is the feminist faves club. And in that you will also receive all of the book club stuff, but get these episodes ad free as well. And every once in a while, I'm going to pop in with some other little extras here and there for you. Uh, A few days ago, I actually uploaded an extra topic from the mini what's in the news episode that I didn't have time to add to the episode that was published to the main feed. So definitely go check out Patreon. It's been so much fun. I'm really, really appreciative of all the interactions that I have with you all on Patreon. And it's just been an absolute blast. 
Lastly, if you love the show and you haven't yet given it a review, please go to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review with a quick sentence about why you enjoy the show. Or if you listen on Spotify, you can also rate the show there and it would be greatly appreciated. It really does help me so, so much. And also your participation with any of the sponsors that I talk about is also a really, really wonderful way for you to support the show. And I promise I would never back any products that I don't personally think are really awesome. So, all right. That is all that I have for you today. With all of that being said, I encourage you to rage on. Bye. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues, and it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.